the Make Time to Play podcast with me, Georgia Jones, brought to you by the Make Time to Play campaign. Make Time to Play provides parents and carers with hundreds of free play ideas and resources to keep your little ones entertained, whilst talking about the various benefits of play that aids child development. You can download the free Make Time to Play app on iOS and Android for more than 450 play activities, which allows you to filter the activities by your child's age, your play setting, and number of children playing. We've got a very interesting episode for you today. I spoke to Tom Purser from the National Autistic Society all about the role of play in autism. Tom discusses the importance of changing attitudes towards autistic children, particularly the notion that there is no right or wrong way to play. He also discusses different behaviours of autistic children whilst playing, as well as busting some myths. So today I am joined by Tom Purser. Now Tom is Head of Guidance, Volunteering and Campaigns at the National Autistic Society. Lovely to have you here Tom, thank you for joining us. Um, So let's start off, Um, what would be great is if you could tell us a bit of background around what you do and also just a bit of background on autism as a as a whole in general for people that don't know. Of course. So I'm Tom, I'm as you said I'm the head of guidance, volunteering and campaigns at the National Autistic Society. So the charity is the UK's largest um, autism charity. We do a whole host of things but the things that I'm responsible for is our sort of digital guidance work, our specialist casework teams. We provide information, advice, and guidance to people experiencing exclusion from school, um, transitions, um, uh, inpatient mental health services, some really crucial things there. Um, I look after our network of volunteer led branches across the country. There's 116 of those and 1,500 volunteers. Um, and also, as a charity, we uh, don't just exist to provide support. We're also campaigning for change all the time as well. And that's what the campaigns element is, trying to get the government to make changes to laws, to, for the public to understand autism better. Um, and we're there essentially to try and create a society that works for autistic people. And that's children and adults, because um, just to, you know, to pick up on your point about what autism is and a bit of background you know uh, autism uh, there are 700,000 autistic people in the UK that is children and adults sometimes a lot of people think it disappears when you hit age 18 but it uh, absolutely doesn't it's a lifelong condition um it's something you're born with it's something you have all your life and so it can pose different challenges at different stages of people's lives and, and I know we're talking about play and development and, and children today, but I think it's it's really important to remember across anything to do with autism that autistic children become autistic adults. Um, uh, autism, as I say, it's a lifelong disability. It um, uh, affects the way that people interact, communicate with the world and people around them. Um, autistic people can experience the world very differently. Um, in terms of the sensory world and that will come into a lot of what we talk about today I think the, that um, that you know sights sounds smells touch all of those things autistic people can process and experience differently 
uh, and it can um, autistic people can communicate differently some will have no spoken language some will develop spoken language completely typically um, but uh, almost everyone will have you know, some uh, some differences in how they develop so how um, autistic people will look in early childhood um, will often be uh, different from typically developing children. Oh, okay. I mean, it's so, it's so interesting because I feel like I'm hearing this as kind of somebody that is is a, a, almost a bit ignorant to actually what the signs are that you know. And you forget, of course, a, an autistic child does turn into an autistic adult, and they need that support throughout. It's not just the child support, you know, and it, it, it continues, which is what your charity is obviously so fabulously there for, which is brilliant. Is there a kind of age that's the most common for diagnosis? So really, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult question. It depends, really. And the pictures change quite a lot in the last 10 years. But the kind of typical um, experience that families will have is they will have a child they will be you know the, the parents tend to do that watching of the milestones and keeping track of how they're developing and getting on and they will begin to notice in quite early childhood perhaps that their child is developing differently perhaps they're not developing spoken language as quickly as as their their peers you know people often compare their children to a, you know the other children um uh, perhaps they are not communicating and not interacting in the way that they might have expected perhaps the the way that they're playing might be different um and some of those sort of early signs of not playing and interacting with others or playing with toys and things perhaps in a way that they wouldn't have expected um but so and so some children will be diagnosed um, at you know, quite an early stage and actually my my own son he's 19 now but he was diagnosed age two and a half and so really we were lucky from that perspective it was picked up quite early on we we had a really good um, experience without too much of a wait for diagnosis locally and that meant that he could access the that right sort of support from really early on in his life but actually for that's not always the story for everyone so there's no it's, that, that's perhaps a, a bit of a it's a typical but maybe a stereotypical example um lots of children it might not happen till they get to primary school um and can often be then um, teachers are involved in that diagnostic process or at least um kicking it off uh, lots of families and uh, equally autistic adults sometimes waiting years actually for for a diagnosis there isn't enough um, diagnostic capacity in the country so we do get reports of, um, of families waiting sometimes three four five years on local waiting lists um, and actually the experience for girls can be very different on average girls tend to be diagnosed later in childhood um, sometimes into teenage years uh, and that's often because of um, some sort of myths and misconceptions about autism and uh, and also a lack of understanding about how girls can present sort of socially and and through development 
Um, so, uh, and actually for, for some people, they will get to adulthood uh, and not have a diagnosis. And as I say, this has changed quite a lot over the last 10 years, but for a lot of, of what was children 20 years ago, they weren't being, um, there wasn't a, a, an understanding of autism, there wasn't very good diagnostic services around at all anywhere. And actually lots of children would have fallen through the cracks, would have reached adulthood without a diagnosis. And we still see people in their adults in their 40s, 50s, right up into their 80s uh, in our in our own diagnostic services actually receiving their, their diagnosis. But that that really the typical process is identification early on, hopefully without too much of a wait, um, a, a diagnosis, and then trying to work with school and local services to put the right support. I think it's quite difficult for parents, because we do, as parents, when you have a child, you do, you watch for anything that might be, you know, that they might do slightly different to see whether it's any form of, you know, anything, any, any difficulty they might be having in life whether it's their hearing or their speech or you know autism um i think we are, we all do it it's very easy sometimes to pass it off as as oh that that's just them that they they're just particular in that way they're just like oh they don't like labels in their clothes or you know they like lining their cars up um and, it, and, and the thing is, what's difficult as well as a parent is some kids do just like doing that. Some kids are quite particular with the way they do things. My child, actually, is very particular, very neat. Everything's very neat. So it's quite hard, isn't it? And I, I can understand why then it's only when they go to school that sometimes that's when they actually get diagnosed because teachers are obviously trained to, well, I hope they are anyway, to, well maybe not all of them yeah to see kind of like you know the what the not warning signs it's not a an issue but you know the the things that would then signal autism so to, so talking about you know children and them developing and play um play is obviously very important to all children especially autistic children um so what what is the what are the benefits of play for autistic children yeah and i think uh, what's really important is probably to say that at the, the top of all of this that there is um there isn't a right and wrong way to play for, for a child it, it's um i think for a long time the way in which autistic children prefer to play was seen as wrong or deficient or disordered and I really think the attitudes are changing around that that, that as understanding of autism grows um, there is a, a, a growing acceptance of the fact that autistic children may like to play differently and of course parents teachers will want to encourage any child autistic or not to try different things do things in a different way um, to add new experiences but um so really what's what's important is of course that autistic children have opportunities to play to play in different way to develop through play to develop all the skills that any child would develop through play but it's really important that we don't see sort of one set of players the right way and, and the autistic way of playing as, as the wrong way um, because autistic children will play for lots of 
lots of different reasons they will play it for their own amusement enjoyment they will play because they it's their way of interacting with or reaching out to to people and and they will play as a form of coping with those sensory aspects so dealing with the noisy busy overwhelming um, situations that sometimes can happen even even preschool um, children can find themselves in my son hated soft play centers for example when he was really young because they were just too noisy and too overwhelming and there were too many people near him and, and all those sorts of things but um he came to in, enjoy them in, in as he as he grew older but you know it, it it wasn't that it was wrong that he didn't want to go to a soft play center or, or something like that we had to understand what it was that he wanted from those those sorts of experiences um and and make sure that we were giving him opportunities as i say to try new things as well as to do the things that he finds how how was that because you have um five children in total is that right you've been busy (laughs) how would you do it oh goodness me i've got one in a struggle um how did you find that obviously trying to do things with your four children who none of None, the other four aren't autistic, autistic, are they? So just just the one. Um, how did you find doing like group activities to kind of, would you have to more suit your son and then everyone would fit around him? Yeah, a, a little bit. He's our, he's our eldest, so he came along first. So in many ways, by the time the rest joined, um, the sort of shape of our family life was quite well set. So... Um, we perhaps wouldn't always, um, I mean, I remember an experience going to um, a museum in London, for example, and I think we had probably three of them by that point, and my autistic son just absolutely hated it. And we thought, there's no point doing these things. We, we didn't want to subject him to that and put, it, put him through that. So it's a case of finding ways that the other children could still experience those things as and when they wanted to or that we did it in a in a in a way that our autistic son could enjoy so going at times where it's less busy going up on a weekday um even um you know, potentially missing a day of school to have that opportunity because it was important for them to be able to have that experience and it was important to him, for him to be able to have that experience but in an autism friendly way um and so i think uh, we it, it is obviously a bit of a compromise um, between his needs and the needs of for other children. But I think we've been able to, over the years, um, do things, um, you know, lots of outdoor activities, lots of walking, lots of time in the countryside. And I think now they're all teenagers, I'm not sure that they love you know, rambling through the countryside quite as much as they once did, but uh, certainly the case that yeah, that they have a, a lovely relationship. I think because they were still able to do activities together, and we we never forced our autistic son to go along with with perhaps what you know, typical families might have might have done at that time. Did you did you work um, with the uh, National Autistic Society prior to your son arriving, or was that a, a thing that happened after? So I joined um, in 2010, so I've 
been there for just just over 10 years and by that point my autistic son was let's see if I can do the maths quickly he was he was eight years old by that point so he'd had his diagnosis for about six years so five and a half six years so we were quite well into into that first and I'd, I'd done a few things helping out the charity and was lucky enough to use that experience to to start working to help other families and to to, to get involved that's amazing and you mentioned about we touched on kind of like how autistic children can play you know slightly differently to to other children um what what are the kind of things that that are different so autistic children because they may struggle with social interaction uh, and social imagination perhaps what you won't see is you know lots of imaginative game playing with other people um, early on perhaps you may see them playing with um, objects toys not necessarily in an imaginative way but in a sensory way so that can often perhaps again slightly stereotypically be about just kind of lining cars up or um, spinning the wheels of, of, a, of a toy car um, or uh, even sort of the, the sensory type sort of driving up and down their arm or something like that um, rather than constructing a big kind of imaginary world where the, the car's going on a journey and it's uh, um, uh, you know picking up people and or those sorts of things that that is uh, it's difficult to say whether it's a typical or a stereotypical um example that's often the things that um the parents talk about noticing first it's certainly what we notice with with our son but but i think the um that you do what i don't want to give the impression is that autistic people don't have any imagination they absolutely do um there are some real myths around autistic people not having imagination not not having empathy as well is is, is of course the other one or not wanting friends or, or social relationships and actually do it's that those things can be difficult and autistic people can find it hard to form those relationships and do that interaction um so it may not come naturally to an autistic child to, to do that. Um, and so just on that point about imagination, you know, actually some, or, or, or many autistic children and adults will have really rich, full, imaginative worlds. And, you know, my, my son certainly did, he almost sort of inhabited, he, he got into drawing quite late on, but quite sort of suddenly, and he would draw quite obsessively um, these imagined characters he created for himself. And this sort of whole world existed really where um, he he created this sort of set of characters for himself that he draw in different scenarios one after the other. And um, I think what was happening there was it was his attempt to sort of work the world out a bit and to each, each character sort of um, was associated with another person in our life. And I think it was his way of working through who these people were and what his relationship was to them and and how the world worked, really. Um, and so I know that, that drawing sort of is a, is a form of play, but I think it's a good example of how that imaginative world was being used and absolutely did exist there. And, and what was important for us was kind of unlocking that and supporting him to to 
have a have that kind of positive experience, and actually that those characters kind of they, they were often our family wider family members, and actually everyone in the in the family kind of took on their character and would play those sort of roles with him, and that was that was really lovely. And but I think for a lot of the time it was them kind of coming into his world rather than him sort of stepping outside of that imaginary world he created. I suppose that's the kind of like the the sacrifice you make as a family of going into his world because you know that keeps him calm and makes him feel comfortable it must have been so nice for you as well seeing him use his imagination like that and seeing him actually working things out in his own head and drawing it down and that was his way of doing it so I bet you you know when he first started doing that that was quite a nice reassuring for you to see yeah, it definitely was. And I think that, well, I mean, he's, he's doing a, an art degree now. Wow. So it's, it's something he's followed through. Um, but And I think as a, one of the, the really good principles in uh, early childhood development, and particularly that uh, autistic children can have very intense interests and passions around particular topics, I think, um, you know, using those interests and going you know, engaging with those interests is, is a really important way to you know, to create those bridges um you know the national autistic society has a, a program called the early bird program for preschool children um, which people can find all about um, on our on our website um and uh, we were lucky enough to do that early on before i worked at the national autistic society and what it supports you to do as parents is to think differently and to analyze a situation and to understand what a what what might be how what your autistic child might be experiencing and what you can do to help them in that in that situation and and I don't mean help as a as a in, in terms of sort of you know doing something wrong or, or whatever but you know to form those bonds and to help their development and to help them as I say do some you know, try things differently have some new experiences to understand why they might be playing or, or or behaving in a certain way and what you can do as a parent to encourage that and to, to foster um, some more of it um, or you know potentially if they're behaving in a way which indicates distress or they're not enjoying something what it is you can change about the environment you're in to um to help with that right and a lot of um autistic children do kind of play on their own a lot of solo play is that something that kind of parents should be concerned about do they need to try and make them play with other children or do you leave them do you let them just get on with it yeah it's it's difficult there's a fine line to walk really um you in general it is not a good idea to force an autistic child to do anything they don't want to do um gentle encouragement um providing some structure and a good routine um really creating activities where they might be playing with or cooperating or working with other children obviously it's a good thing it's a good skill to for any child to learn it's a good skill for an autistic child to learn but that it, it should be done in a really respectful way in a way that really understands autism in an environment that is suitable for them so not expecting lots of them in a in a busy classroom 
to do it for perhaps a time limited um, uh, sort of period um, in a way that they then know what's going to happen afterwards and perhaps after they've had that what might be quite an exhausting experience of of socializing or working with others is then followed by a period of doing something solo that they might just enjoy in themselves giving them that um, time to decompress and uh, but absolutely any parent wants to encourage their child to be able to work with others um, and to, to communicate with others and parents of autistic children I'm sure feel exactly the same but it's about doing it in a way that doesn't cause distress certainly not about forcing forcing the child and I think in particular um, something which gets remarked on quite early on is often one of the signs that parents notice quite early is around eye contact or a lack of eye contact lots of autistic adults and children can find eye contact giving eye contact not just difficult actually describe it as being painful um that's kind of a very overwhelming experience um there are tricks you know lots of um autistic people are uh, learn or told to sort of look at a spot there because actually you can't really tell the difference um uh, when you're having that kind of one-to-one interaction but um but it's really important to say it's, it's some sometimes it's a thing that parents are really worried about not the not giving eye contact and forcing a child to give eye contact is never ever a good idea um particularly if they do find it you know, really really painful or uncomfortable so um that's you know just another thing where providing the opportunities where you might be working with or playing with other children that sort of thing might happen naturally it might be something that the the child never grows comfortable with and that's when perhaps those tricks can can come into things if if say my my child was playing with an autistic child would would it be helpful for me to say to my child you know they they you know this this child doesn't like eye contact or doesn't feel comfortable with eye contact so just kind of accept that and would would it be helpful if my child didn't give eye contact back or should 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 they carry on as normal it's difficult it's so for particularly young children i i think um having having too many expectations of adapting their own behavior to others can be can be really difficult um what we've uh tried to do at the National Autistic Society is we've created lots of school resources. We do them right down to um, Key Stage 1 um, that are just some simple, nice um, resources, some nice little animations around some children might behave differently and that's okay. Some children might, and we do mention eye contact, some children might not, not like giving eye contact and that's okay. Um, uh, and if you look at, for example, the CBeebies um, show Pablo, is a, a, I think it's a fantastic um, show. And I think that really gives some, I mean, it's, it's made with autistic people providing all the input, and which is really, really important for anything like this. And obviously we do it in our own work as well. But um, the, 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 those sorts of very early learning experiences around the fact that 
some autistic children may play or behave differently to you and that's okay is is probably the most important thing for non-autistic children to be aware of and of course what's what's really hard is that I know we we're talking about autism this morning but for example hearing impaired uh, or deaf children may really need someone to look directly at them because of you know, lip reading and support communication and it's difficult to expect a five-year-old to know the difference between a hearing impaired child and an autistic child that they would just think of them as their friend or another person in the classroom so giving them really hard and fast rules I think is, is quite difficult but it's why um, it's really important that teachers and teaching assistants are trained you know, in autism and, and other conditions so they can support these sorts of experiences. The majority of autistic children will go to, to a mainstream school and so it's very important that 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 level of expertise and training exists within every classroom so that those interactions can be really positive. Um, you know, that with 700,000 autistic people in the UK, if you, it's probably, it's quite likely every child is going to have gone to school with an autistic child. It, there's a good chance that the workplace you end up in, um, you may have someone autistic working there, even though the, the employment rate for autistic adults is, you know, is really poor at the moment. We know that there are there are more uh, more and more autistic people actually in the workplace, and it's important that those early experiences and experiences and understanding of others at school supports more positive experiences for autistic adults with autistic adults later mm. i think what's lovely is it is becoming kind of more more well known you know from things like just like a you know a cartoon something as simple as that it just makes it so much more mainstream and and very visible to to people that wouldn't necessarily kind of go online and look into what is autism you know things like that and and i think it is there's you know there's tv shows there's things that are making it easier for you know joe blogs to understand which is which is great um so talking talking about kind of like toys and 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 things that that autistic children would play with is there anything that's specific that you're like that is a fabulous toy that's a great thing for a child to play with so there is sadly there isn't there's no um, one thing um uh every autistic child is going to be different and they'll have their own likes and dislikes and interests and, and things but we uh, often it's sensory related toys that can be things like bubble machines it could be things with uh, you know certain kind of touches they, that, that certain sort of feels some autistic children might really like a certain type of um of sort of sensory tactile experience um, some then might hate it so there's no hard and fast like get something you know rubbery and strong that they can re you know really get some good feedback from uh, I mean people might remember yes. fidget spinners from a few years the craze of fidget spinners from a few years ago actually that started out really with autistic children and that sort of sensory of, of spinning and things actually it was they were used um, as a bit of a sort of toy and a tool for autistic children often to use in class as a way of doing a bit of sensory regulation and um, keeping focused um, but yeah the certainly sensory toys I mean my son um, uh, 
pay massive tribute to the trampoline manufacturers of the UK because we've used <laughs> a lot of trampolines over the years and he absolutely loved it when we when we first got one um literally the first day I think he bounced on it for about four hours <laughs> great so. exercise and um, yeah absolutely yeah but a brilliant exercise but that sensory feedback um can be really enjoyable for for children or autistic children um it's uh, uh, that for him was was massive and we do hear that that a lot that trampolines is, is something that um autistic children love but actually it's uh, and we do work with um uh, for example we work with the the entertainer toy shop um they've got our autism friendly award they're really committed to accessibility they actually have a section on their website with some kind of autism friendly toys um some of those are you know, trying to look at kind of early years right the way through um, to, to sort of later development. Um, you know, some of the, uh, the the early sensory things. I mean, my son loved. We had like a, a tree a thing that you put balls in, and they popped up somewhere else and made noise and, and that sort of thing. And he that was great for him. Um, but I remember when we went in someone else's house and they had like a talking robot thing, which you might think, well, it's the same. You know, you're pressing buttons, it makes some noises. He absolutely hated that. Um, now, the difference between the two is perhaps he knows how the tree works. He knows what to expect of it. He's getting that predictable sensory sort of experience. The robot perhaps was unpredictable. He didn't know what, what it did. At that point, he, he didn't have much um, language. And so he couldn't really, couldn't really tell us. We just had to sort of leave, basically, because he was that upset by it. Um, but I think that sort of shows that how the it's not necessarily about the toy and what the toy does. It's about the, the predictability, how you might structure or introduce a toy, if it's done on their own terms. Um, and, and so there isn't necessarily a case that you take a toy um, and that be perfect for all autistic children. But um, and I think it's about knowing your your, your child's or the, the child you might be supporting in school and what their interests, what their likes and dislikes are. Some autistic children might be sensory seeking and so will want something noisy and lights up and, and, and does those sorts of things. And some will be very sensitive to certain types of noise or touch. So you've got really, until you can make that recommendation about a particular toy you've, you've got to know the, the, the child um, lots of special schools and actually in, increasingly in other places you'll find sensory rooms um, and they tend to be you know calming places with lots of sensory toys in them whether it's big sort of bubble things lots of lights a certain type of um, kind of tactile interactive toy um, and you know, typically autistic children will enjoy those um, but you know, if every autistic child is different, so it's it's best to start with that child rather than to necessarily have any kind of hard and fast rules. Mm. Talking about like the areas and things, I've I've actually noticed at certain places. Um, I think it was a theme park I went to. Um, that there was like a you know a specific area for autistic children that was kind of calm and. It might have even been a indoors kind of room. I think it was just kind of so they could get away from all the 
the hecticness of a theme park because you know they are pretty intense <laughs> even if for adults without autism it's like oh goodness me I need a break I need to go and sit down in a quiet room um which is amazing that's lovely that kind of places are starting to be inclusive and think about these things yeah that's right we've we've worked with Gatwick Airport as another example um they have a, a fantastic sensory run there to try and provide a more accessible experience because we know how stressful flying can be um, and they've worked really hard actually to make um, make changes to the entire journey through the through the airport but yeah their sensory room is fantastic and um, rangers football club for example in, in scotland they've got really brilliant sensory room as well and, and we've worked with them over the years so you do start to see these things um, developing but actually, you know, if you're thinking about a school or even thinking at home, a full-on sensory room could be quite expensive. But there are ways to create a sort of, um, you know, a, a low-budget sensory room as well. Have you got even just a quiet corner of a, of a room, a little pop-up tent, some things in there that a, 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 your child might enjoy? Um, actually, as you say, like at the theme park, they can just retreat to have some time out do that kind of bit of particularly if they've just done some um uh, overwhelming activities or been lots of people involved with something a place they can go just to cool or have the time that they need to move on to the next thing what would you say the main barriers are then when when children are playing and socializing so i mean i think we we need to be you know, Kind of clear about autism as well that the, the autism does if you like present some barriers in itself but in as much as autistic children like to play in one way um, as I said earlier the 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 typical view was that they were playing in the wrong way so there was often pressure to change that so that was a that was a, a bit of a barrier but um and then non-autistic children would like to play in another way so the barrier really is about how you can support them to come together and have really positive experiences. And I think the, what is lacking there is really good teacher training. If we're thinking about school, um, there isn't enough training. The government are looking at there that they've got their um, special educational needs review coming out, um, hopefully in the next month. And um, that we're really hoping it's going to start addressing that problem of teacher training we do work with the autism education trust that the government fund and there is training there for teachers but it isn't consistent and really it also needs to be backed up with some really good funding so that there's enough um, teacher assistant uh, you know, staff within the classroom to support positive interactions as well um, but I think uh, uh, really at the root it is a lack of understanding of, of autism can create the, the barriers something like you mentioned a sensory room in a theme park something like that it's quite small it's not it doesn't have to be very expensive even if it's just a quiet room um it can be the difference between an autistic child never having that experience of going to a theme park or having a really positive experience and sadly we still speak to too many families for who those experiences whether it's you know, swimming lessons, going out to the swimming pool, whether it's even just going to the shops, the cinema, or wherever it might be, that those experiences can be cut off 
from them still and um, autistic people and their, and their families can find themselves you know, really quite isolated without those opportunities to do what other families perhaps take for granted. Mm. Is, is there actually anywhere where you can find like a list of like autism friendly kind of theatres and um, play areas and yeah, so there there are a few places to try. I mean, our website autism.org.uk. Um, we do have a list of our autism friendly award holders. Um, we do have our autism services directory. But in all honesty, it's a it's a good idea just to have a Google in your local local area. Most cinemas will tend to offer autism friendly screenings. Obviously, during COVID, when things have been shut, they've not been not been available. But um, we'll often. Uh, uh, offer those. If there's a National Autistic Society branch near you, um, as I say, there's 116 of them. So most people are within kind of about 20 miles of a of a, an NAS branch. They will often work with local providers, soft play places, trampoline parks, things like that, to get them to put on specific sessions for autistic children or adults and their and their families. Um, but actually what we are seeing, and I think this is really positive because it's, it's, if you like, society taking responsibility. What we're starting to see is places putting the understanding autism, understanding what they can do to make a difference for families and putting on specific sessions. Um, and I mentioned the entertainer, obviously a shining example. They have um, a, you know, an autism specific shopping hour uh, where they will, you know, things are quiet and um, families can come and in a, in a more sort of so that you don't have all the toys flashing and lots of things going on at the same time they, they will um, offer those um, shopping experiences supermarkets again um, covid has been a little bit of a disruption to this but many of them were offering um, autism specific shopping hours as well um, and you know, perhaps not a great play experience but important life experience to learn how the supermarket works and obviously families have got to go and do their shopping so um but there isn't really one place where all of this comes together because lots of it happens at a community level which i think on one hand is really positive um uh, but on the other hand can be difficult for families to find that information out and as i say if you do have a branch and a national autistic society branch in your local area they will often know because uh, they're for the most part run by you know, all volunteers but mostly parents autistic children or adults and autistic adults themselves they'll know the places to go to they'll know the museums that are offering early openings they'll know the soft play center that does a monthly um autism hour so you know do do take have a good look online and if you've got a, a branch in close to you then they will often know and will be really happy to people in the right direction so interesting like even you just saying about how like the entertainer has a a, a autism friendly like you know shopping hour or whatever you don't you never think I never think when I go into a toy shop the fact that all these toys are going off which for my child is absolutely amazing and he's like he's all his Christmases have come at once but of course, for a child with autism, that could be just a huge, huge stress and and kind of trigger. Yeah, and I think to not to, to keep going on about the entertainer, they are they are great in this area though, and they that I think what they really recognised was that they wanted to give 
that you know what they see is that really important childhood experience of going to a toy shop and getting a toy and being excited by it they wanted to make sure that was something that was available to autistic children uh, uh, and that they weren't shut out from from that experience um amazing well tom it's been such a pleasure talking to you and um, before before you go will you just remind us one more time where it is we can come if we need any tips on play um or any advice for parents who have just found out their child's autistic yeah, of course. So our website is autism.org.uk. There is loads of information on there, as you say, from um, information about how to get a diagnosis, what the diagnostic process might be like, about school options, um, information for autistic adults as well. Um, our autism services directory, you can find out if there's a branch near you. Um, lots and lots of information there. Um, so, yeah, please do check it out. Amazing. Thank you so much, Tom. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. That was such a lovely chat with Tom. It was so interesting to learn more about autism, especially the things you wouldn't think of unless you knew someone who was autistic, such as noisy toys in shops being off-putting for some children. It was a great episode to make you more conscious and understanding the needs of autistic children. If you want to learn more information about autism, please visit www autism.org.uk